Kristen Green is the last OB doctor in Logan County now that the only hospital in town closed its labor and delivery unit. My first thought is always, when are we going to take care of our women? How to improve rural maternity care? Just ahead on WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, a homeless shelter manager in Bloomington discusses the need for winter emergency housing as capacity gets cut. I think we are not doing enough, quite frankly, uh, and just to state that plainly. Plus, Central Illinois takes part in a national study on how to treat long COVID. And that's really the problem with this whole syndrome is understanding it better. Stories right after a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 891 and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. We have a beautiful pipe organ. With hearing aids, all of a sudden this pipe organ comes alive. It's like, it's a beautiful, rich sound that I don't know that, that I could have appreciated prior to having hearing aids. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. If you were listening yesterday, you heard about the disturbing pattern of rural maternity ward closures in central Illinois. You also might have wondered, what's next? Well, WGLT's Lindsay Jones is back with another look at maternity care deserts. She speaks to the last OBGYN in Logan County. This is Dr. Kristen Green, OBGYN at her office at Springfield Clinic in Lincoln. Monday I do surgeries, clinic in the afternoon, the rest of the days I do clinic. She's talking about her daily workload now that she's the last OBGYN in all of Logan County. How many, so like how many people do you see in the day? How many patients, I guess? So since he's been cutting back, I think we're more like anywhere from 23 to 26. There used to be two, but the other OBGYN recently retired and it's not yet clear when or if a replacement will take over. That means that for now, Dr. Christian Green is the only OB doctor in the population 30,000 plus county. It keeps us busy. But this trend isn't isolated to Logan County. March of Dimes, the national nonprofit focused on moms and babies, released a report last year estimating that 2.2 million women in America live in maternity care deserts, where there are no hospitals with labor and delivery units, and no obstetrical health care providers at all. There are consequences for this for both mothers and for babies. What that means is that there are a lot more births that are not attended or not at a hospital. There is also an increased risk of preterm delivery. And there are consequences for the obstetrical care providers who do remain. Dr. Green used to deliver babies at Lincoln Memorial Hospital, which shares a campus with Springfield Clinic. But hospital officials said last year a reduced demand for labor and delivery services happening at the same time as a rise in demand for other services prompted them to close down the three-bed maternity unit late last year. That means Dr. Green now has about a 40-minute drive to Springfield to deliver, since that's where Lincoln's hospital transfers go. And because there's a shortage of OBGYNs in general, she's taken on other responsibilities in other counties as well to try to help. There's going to be a little bit more running than I've had before because I have an outreach in Morton and I'm going to Havana and Mason City. Right now, Dr. Green is making this work, 
but if it sounds difficult to sustain, it is. And for some women in these counties who need that OBGYN care, this is difficult for them too. Transportation, insurance, or a lack thereof, and the distance to a doctor are complicating factors for women living in these obstetrical deserts. We recently had a lady very high risk. I couldn't get her to her maternal fetal medicine appointment in Springfield because of transportation issues. And my nurses literally spent hours calling different agencies, calling Medicaid, trying to find some way to get her there. There are programs trying to fill these gaps. The University of Illinois College of Medicine Rockford has RMED, a rural education medical program at its medical school, which trains future doctors for work in rural Illinois settings. Hannah Hankel is the assistant dean for rural health professions at the school. She says the program is designed to flush out what it means to be a healthcare provider in areas where there are few others and resources are limited. Our students have to understand how to navigate lower resource availability. There's not a lot of specialists. So a lot of times when our students go into a primary care specialty, they might be one or two of the physicians in that practice group, and they're going to have to know how to navigate that. Hinkle says about 70% of the school's students stay in Illinois after graduation. Only three have worked in Chicago. There's a number of tracks or electives those in the program can take, ranging from family medicine to OBGYN. As you might be able to predict by now, there's one track in particular that's difficult to find placements for. Here's Diane Potts, our med's assistant director of curriculum, outreach, and development. OB, rural OB, is very difficult to find. As an example, Potts says one OBGYN who was accepting placements in a rural setting transitioned to another clinic in the Bloomington Normal area, so that placement opportunity was lost in the change. In Logan County, Dr. Kristen Green is often eager to accept RMED students, but RMED's Diane Potts says there need to be more options. There's a lot of ask from the chair of OB for me to find what I can in rural, and it's a really, it's quite difficult. No matter how many successful RMED graduates that program turns out, as long as the healthcare system remains in its current state, the same challenges that have led to an OB shortage will face the new generation of rural healthcare providers. Dr. Kristen Green in Logan County says low Medicaid reimbursements may be a deterrent factor for rural areas, since many rural residents are on that public insurance program. Ultimately, Potts, her RMED colleague Hannah Hinkle, and Dr. Kristen Green all agree on one thing. The challenges facing rural health care providers are system-wide and need addressed by policymakers for anything to get substantively better for women and their families in rural settings. Here's Dr. Green. My first thought is always, when are we going to take care of our women? And Green says taking care of expecting moms means taking care of our future as well. I'm Lindsay Jones. Read more about maternity care deserts in central Illinois at WGLT.org. A new metric from the British Treasury cuts their public debt by about two-thirds. How did they do that? Math. We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace. Listen this afternoon at 5.30 on WGLT 89.1 FM and WGLT.org. This is Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. The homeless encampment outside a Bloomington homeless shelter is no more. The tent dwellers have scattered since police ordered them to move after officers received complaints. The tents were set up along Constitution Trail. 
Some left town, others occasionally drop by the shelter for services, the whereabouts of a few others unknown. Matt Burgess is chief executive officer for the Home Sweet Home Ministry Shelter. He says those who left are likely either couch surfing or back on the streets. Burgess says Bloomington Normal's homeless issue has not gone away and could in fact become more challenging with a reduction in available beds next winter. Burgess tells WGLT's Eric Stock part of the problem is misguided stereotypes people have about the unhoused. The first thing that I I always want to remind people is to uh, view folks who are unsheltered, uh, including sleeping out in the elements or in a tent, uh, to view them as, as, as people, fellow community members, neighbors of ours who are in a, in a fairly desperate situation a lot of the time. Uh, certainly when, when people encounter folks that they're not familiar with, one of our natural instinctive responses is to be a little fearful. Uh, but I can tell you, we, you know, we, we know these people. We, we interact with them on a daily basis. Uh, the vast majority of people who we encounter are very uh, peaceful are really just trying to get back to a place of stability and, and really don't pose a danger to anybody. You know, sometimes uh, substance use is part of what goes on for folks. And so sometimes, you know, intoxication or being under the influence may be part of how they present sometimes. But again, that doesn't mean that they're violent or a dangerous or, or risk uh, to other people, even if they are intoxicated in the moment. And uh, concerns about safety invokes uh, thoughts about the Jordan Neely case, uh, the homeless black man in New York who was uh, choked to death by a white man on a New York City subway train. And that city's mayor, Eric Adams, has referred to this incident as justification to move mentally ill people off the streets. And he's proposed involuntary hospitalization. What do you make of a plan like that? Uh, I I don't think that that's a long term uh, viable solution. I don't think that's uh, an answer. I think that is uh, maybe a step. And of course, New York City is a very different environment than here. Um, but that that would be a temporary measure, maybe. But from what I understand, Jordan Neely was not dangerous. Uh, yes, mental illness was part of his uh, presentation, but really was not a danger to others. The, the behaviors that he was engaging in appear to be behaviors that he would do on a fairly regular basis. Again, I, I want to get back to these are our neighbors. You know, they might not have an address, but these are our neighbors. We, we as a community need to have some sense of connectedness with each other, I think. And uh, to, to just lock people away who have mental illness or, uh, you know, to, take an invol- to make them involuntarily be committed somewhere – uh, that, that that really starts to encroach on people's rights. When you have uh, residents who are staying in tents and are essentially forced off the property, forced to move elsewhere, they end up leaving town as they have in most cases. It perhaps gives the impression that the community isn't doing enough to, to help the homeless population. I don't know if that's fair. Is that fair? And what more can the community do? I think we are not doing enough quite frankly, uh, and just to state that plainly. Uh, I think that could be said virtually in any community across the country, though. We're not unique in that. The crisis that exists regarding affordable housing across the United States is is awful. It's, it's really catastrophic for, for our low-income community members. There's just not suitable housing for people who uh, fall below the median income level 
of the community. And so from that perspective, we need to do more. We need to commit to more. We need to, both from a municipal and a private sector do more of coming together. In fact, that's one of the things that we are trying to do right now is is bring different parties together to solve the emergency winter shelter problem uh, that we have. The Salvation Army, our colleagues there, and us are trying to convene a team of people to really identify short and long-term solutions to that this very issue so that we can do more as a community together. So how many beds are going to be available this winter between Home Sweet Home and Salvation Army? Yeah, somewhere around 100 beds, I think, will be available this winter. That That is a reduction from, from my conversations with our, with our colleagues at Salvation Army. That's a reduction of upwards of 50 beds that they've normally provided over the winter months. Uh, the, because the, of the, the safety concerns in that that's building right that yeah raised. because of the citations that have that have been issued the 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 issues that have been raised about how they've been doing things in the past I know that you'll be meeting to try to figure out solutions but what might solutions be we actually think we have a long-term solution we have a uh, a building that is going to be renovated over the course of the next year or so uh, that could be used as the long-term solution to the emergency winter shelter. And so really what we're trying to find right now is a one-year interim solution. Uh, We're just starting to try and, like I said, to try and get this team of people together to think collaboratively, to think cooperatively about solving this one-year problem that next winter we are not going to have a renovated building that uh, is available, that meets all of the the fire safety, health and safety codes as it stands right now. We, we need to find an alternate location or we need to have the, the city council uh, maybe pass a, a special use or waiver type of consideration on some of these ordinances. We're trying to figure those things out right now. As we continue on Sound Ideas with the Matt Burgess from Home Sweet Home Ministries in Bloomington, where is the renovated building that you could potentially be taking over for next year? Yeah, uh, Eastview Christian Church has bought the old YMCA building, um, and that has been something that we—they've uh, done a really good job of engaging us as their next-door neighbor uh, since since purchasing that building. And, and so this has been something that we've been talking with them about for a number of months. Uh, obviously, there's significant renovations that need to be made to that space— in order to have adequate fire safety and, and those types of things uh, added to the to the space in the building, you know they already have locker rooms that are that are really suitable for providing shower and bathroom access. So that's that's solved already. But it's more about bringing that building into a fire safety compliance standpoint. How many could you house there? Do you think? You know, I don't think we would be looking at more than what we've seen historically using the emergency shelter at Salvation Army. And so, you know, maybe up to 50 beds is what we'd be talking about. Probably more likely to see 30 to 40 individuals on any given night uh, using that space. So that kind of gets gets you back to where you were. That's right. And you'd reference to getting private industry involved in this and helping with solutions where do you imagine that coming from? It seems as if private industry feels this is setting money on fire. They're they're not going to be able to recoup their costs to, to do anything uh, in this space, whether it's affordable housing or elsewhere. You know, I think we have to look at where we're already set, setting money on fire. Um, and uh, that comes in the form of 
emergency responder calls, uh, hospital utilization, uh, things that are very, very expensive for us to provide as services or interventions for folks, uh, allocating resources to housing, to supportive housing, to this type of emergency winter shelter, it's actually less expensive than how we're already spending a lot of this money. That's what research from community to community who have done uh, things around affordable housing have demonstrated that it becomes more cost effective than just maintaining our status quo of calling 911 or or having people go to the ER or having to get arrested and incarcerated. All that stuff, uh, just from a pure financial stance, uh, just doesn't make sense for us to continue doing things that way. Busloads of migrants were sent to Chicago recently, where there's already an immigrant housing crisis there. Has Bloomington Normal seen any trickle down, any migrants from Chicago recently, and are there any plans to address that as we look for solutions for what is already a major housing shortage in this community? We've we've seen maybe a trickle effect, certainly nothing as uh, dramatic and sudden as a bus of people showing up in the community. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're on a, one of the main corridors coming down from Chicago. And so naturally, what happens in Chicago ultimately has some ripple effect in our community. Uh, and so we've seen some minor effect of the, the migrant relocation stuff that's been going on. I know that there have been some initial discussions about that. I know Mayor Coos was uh, trying to, to develop some uh, planning for for that. And so uh, there's nothing specific that we have in place that this is what we will do if it happens. Um, it will be an unfortunate, significant complication to our already strapped housing market uh, and our ability to help people be in housing if if we were to see a busload of people show up. That was Matt Burgess from Home Sweet Home Ministries with WGLT's Eric Stock. This is Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. The Recover Initiative is a multi-year study analyzing the causes of long COVID syndrome and researching potential preventative measures and treatment strategies in central Illinois. It's a collaboration between OSF Healthcare, Carl Health, the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Peoria, and other partners. John Hafner is an attending physician at OSF St. Francis Medical Center and the site investigator for the Recover program. In this conversation with Tim Shelley from Sister Station WCBU, Dr. Hafner explains how the study works and what researchers have found so far. It's a landmark trial that's going to be enrolling uh, tens of thousands of patients within the United States trying to understand better the syndrome that we used to call long COVID, which is post-acute sequelae from COVID, or PASC is kind of the new term for this, but sort of understanding both the symptoms and the progression and possibly how to treat it. What do we know about it? Because I know it presents a number of symptoms. It's not just any one thing. Some people, of course, get fatigued very easily. Other people even have heart issues, depending on you know, how severe it was. It seems like it presents in so many different ways. That's right. And that's really the problem with this whole syndrome is understanding it better. We know that about 20% or one in five people that come down with COVID will end up suffering some form of PASC. But it does hit so many different areas of the body, and we're seeing that within the trial as well, multiple, multiple areas. Are are we beginning to even get a sense of how how can we treat these symptoms, help alleviate this? Yeah, the first step of the trial is to really try to help us identify what is PASC, so be able to have a better working definition of what that is and understand 
what the most common uh, symptoms are and, and really the progression and, and how to better diagnose it. Uh, the next phase of the trial, which is starting right now, is understanding how we can enroll people into treatment phases and understand how we can better treat uh, the, the disease once it starts. And uh, OSF's working with a number of partners on this, I think, University of Illinois College of Medicine being one of them. Yes, that's what's really exciting about this trial is it represents a coalition of central Illinois agencies, um, both the University of Illinois College of Medicine, uh, Carl Health Methodist, and OSF Healthcare all came together, as well as a number of community partners, including the Peoria City County Health Department, uh, Neighborhood House, and a large number of other different coalitions trying to enroll patients so that we get a very good sense of central Illinois in general. And how, how's the uh, identification of people suffering from PASC and uh, enrollment going so far? Is it a lot of eagerness to participate in this? We really have. We've had an amazing number of subjects come forward that are interested in being in the study. And even more remarkably, they've stayed with us. This is a this can be a little bit of a challenging study is that there's a lot of visits. There's a lot of data collection, a lot of blood work and a lot of surveys. But our subjects are really interested in this and have stayed with us through the entire process so far. And this is just a, it's a multi-year uh, you know, study. This isn't just a one and done thing. That's correct. It's a five-year longitudinal cohort study, meaning we're going to follow folks that are enrolled for at least five years uh, at this point to try to understand not only how their symptoms uh, develop or progress or resolve, but you know, possibly even potentially enroll them in for trials for treatment period. And I was going to say, is the ultimate goal to, to try to develop a, you know, a medication or something or, or not that far yet? You know, this isn't the first viral syndrome that's resulted in long-term consequences from infection, but each of those present differently and require different treatments. Some are easy to treat and some are not so easy to treat. So I think the first step in all of this is to better understand this virus and understand how it's affecting the body. And once that's accomplished, we'll really be able to target different treatments and, and ways in which we can help uh, folks with that particular problem. Is, is there really any virus that we can compare that causes such a wide array of, you know, potential symptoms for people long term? This is a very unique virus. It causes not only symptoms in one organ systems, but many organ systems and different people are affected in different ways. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. I used to say when the COVID epidemic was going on, it really makes no sense. There are folks that should be very sick with this uh, virus that weren't and vice versa. Uh, but I think as the body of knowledge grows and we understand the virus better, it's going to make a lot more sense on how things are happening, both in the molecular, genetic and, and biochemical uh, modalities. There. That was Dr. John Hafner updating Tim Shelley on the Recover Long COVID research. Support for WGLT health coverage comes from Carl Health. You can count on Carl as your partner in health care. Information at carl.org. And thanks for choosing WGLT Sound Ideas today, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. This is 891 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. 